Well, good morning, and if you have your Bibles with you, uh, make your way to the Gospel of Luke this morning. That may sound a different tone because uh, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for the past 10 months as we've been walking through this ongoing series and been looking at the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And today we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We can also find this event happening in the Gospel of Matthew. It happens in Matthew chapter 8, um, but we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 7. And we're going to encounter an individual this morning who understood who Jesus was. And he wasn't a Jew or someone who was even in the crowds when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, again, we're in the Gospel of Luke. Luke places this event immediately after his recording of the Sermon on the Mount, which he does in Luke chapter 6. He does it in a little smaller, compact version than Matthew did, um, but he puts it immediately after, whereas if you were to look in Matthew chapter 8, you would see that Matthew inserts another event about he Jesus healing a leper before coming to this, and we shouldn't allow that to really throw us off or... Um, make us uneasy. As a reminder, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not written in chronological order. That's not the purpose of the Gospels. The Gospels are called the Gospels because they're the good news of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the Gospels is that they're recording the life, ministry, teaching, and ultimate purpose of who Jesus Christ is. And actually, it should give us some reassurance because, because there are some differences in the Gospels and the order of events and even in the recording of events, uh, we can know that the Gospel writers didn't all get together in one room and just copy from one another, that they actually did some research and did some backing. And so we know in the Gospel of Luke, the opening of Luke, he tells us that he acquired this information from the eyewitnesses, people who were actually physically there with Jesus, heard what Jesus said, and most likely Luke also got some of his information from some of the other Gospels that were in circulation at this time, and that would be the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. Well, this morning we're going to gain an incredible lesson from an unlikely source. He's a pagan, he's a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion. Now, I don't know about you, but I've learned in my life that sometimes God brings people that are the most unlikely of people that will teach us incredible life lessons. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to learn some incredible life lessons, things we need to know from the life of this centurion. And just in case you're wondering, what do you mean by unlikely people? Uh, why don't you check out this video real quick? I want to talk to you about this. Uh... I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position, after I was all done, big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the... Um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the uh, the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night, and he walked over to me and he said. Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, 
complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. An atheist. To me, that is just an amazing and powerful lesson from an unlikely source when it comes to evangelism, that an atheist, someone who does not believe in God at all, understands evangelism and the importance of evangelism more than most believers do. This morning, we're going to be turning to a passage where we're going to learn a lesson from another unlikely source. He wasn't necessarily an atheist. He possibly was an agnostic but one thing he understood is he understood the authority of Jesus. He understood why the crowds marveled at him at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord said, after he had finished all his sayings, and again, that's referring to the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, 
for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. As I mentioned, this passage is also found in the Gospel of Matthew. You can find it in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And if you were to read in Matthew his recording events, you would notice if you put these two side by side, there are some differences between Matthew and Luke's account, which we're going to bring out and understand. It doesn't mean that the Bible is contradicting itself. Rather, the writers of each gospel were led by the Spirit to write to a particular audience with a particular intention of letting them know who Jesus Christ was, was and is. So our passage begins that Jesus has come and he has entered Capernaum. Matthew and Luke both agree on this. Capernaum was an agricultural town. It was a fishing town. It sat along the north side of the shores of Galilee. It was the place where Jesus is going to set up his base of operations there in the northern part of Israel. In Matthew's account, we're told that it was, not the, it was the satyrian who, in fact, came to Jesus, while Luke, we're told that he sent Jewish elders and some friends. And this is one of the biggest differences between these two accounts in Luke 7 and Matthew chapter 8. But we have to keep in mind the purpose of the gospel writers isn't to, uh, is in telling this story isn't who came to Jesus, but what Jesus, in fact, did with this request. You know, we can get caught up on minor differences within the Gospels, but that's kind of like watching a movie, and then when the movie's over, we have the conversation, how many times did the main character smile in the movie? It really has no point. It has no meaning to the ultimate story and the purpose of that story. It doesn't impact it in any way. And there are differences between these accounts one is a major lesson that Jesus is going to teach in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll look at that in a second, but Luke omits that lesson. We'll deal with that here in a moment. For sake of curiosity, let's deal with the difference of who came to Jesus. Did the centurion come, like Matthew said, or did the Jewish elders and friends come to Jesus, like Luke said? Well, in this day and age, when an official, when an authority figure, someone of high rank, sent a convoy to someone or to a group or to a place, those people, those, that group, went in the name or the authority of that official. They spoke on behalf of the official. So Matthew's omission of the, of the Jewish elders and the friends of the centurion coming to Jesus isn't really a problem because Matthew most likely is writing with the understanding that those who did come to Jesus were speaking on behalf of the centurion and in his authority. They were his representatives. They were his ambassadors, just as we are ambassadors for Christ today. We, as God's people, are commissioned and commanded to speak on behalf of Christ to a fallen world. The other major difference between the two recordings is Matthew adds a small teaching point by Jesus in Matthew 8, verses 11 through 12, immediately after the centurion's statement of being unworthy of Jesus coming to his house. And here's what Matthew chapter 8, 11 and 12 read. It says, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what Jesus is saying there in verses 11 through 12, and we don't know why Luke omitted it, it probably goes, well, here's probably why. Matthew was writing his gospel to a Jewish audience. And this statement that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, pertains to the Jewish audience and to the centurion. The centurion was not a Jewish individual. Matthew most likely admit, or sorry, he was not a Jewish individual. So the phrase sons of the kingdom is speaking of the Jewish people who have a birthright with Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. The problem is that there are going to be people grafted in who are not Jewish. That's us. If you don't have a Jewish background, you have been grafted into the covenantal family of God by your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so Jesus is talking about you. Many will come, in verse 11, from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will be at the table. We will recline with them, be in communion with the covenantal family of God. But verse 12 speaks about the sons of the kingdom, which refers to the Jewish people. They have this birthright with Abraham, and yet they are going to fail to believe that Jesus is the Messiah or Savior or the long-awaited Messiah that they've been praying for. And so Jesus said, because of their lack of faith, they will be thrown into outer darkness. Now, the final difference between the two recordings is Matthew records Jesus as dismissing the centurion or the convoy or the group of people, while Luke simply implies it. And we'll see that here in a second. So let's get into our passage. Jesus is in Capernaum. We're told that in Capernaum there is a centurion who had a servant. The word is also read as slave in some versions. But this servant was highly valued. At the same time, he was sick and he was at the point of death. With the aid of Matthew, we can know that the servant is now lying paralyzed at home, and he is suffering terribly. Because this person was a servant, he has either come down with some sort of horrible illness that has caused paralysis, or he's had some sort of horrible accident which has put him in a state. He obviously wasn't always like this. If he was always like this, there's no reason to come to Jesus in this manner. Matter of fact, if he was always like this, he wouldn't have been a servant to the centurion in the first place. And so the Gospels aren't concerned with what happened. How did he get into this situation? What they're concerned with is the centurion's faith and Jesus' response to that. Luke tells us that the centurion had heard about Jesus in verse 3. So we have to keep in mind, Capernaum is the place where Jesus first came to the synagogue and began teaching. It is the place where he first cast out a demon. It is the place where he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, where he healed many others who came to Peter's mother-in-law's house. It's the place where he cast out more demons. There's no doubt in this city that Jesus had some fame. And when people heard that he had returned to the city, I'm sure it was the news on the street. The elders of the Jews that come to Jesus. This is not speaking of, le of religious leaders. It's speaking of civil leaders, most likely men within the community who would make decisions for a city as a whole. So they would be like a city council or a city board. These were men who were not voted in because they were popular or because they had political views that aligned with everyone else. They were voted in because they were older. And so they come to Jesus, and verse 4 tells us that they pleaded with him earnestly, it means they were continually to beg Jesus to come to the centurion's house. They were asking on behalf of the centurion. And the reason they kept begging and asking is given us in the latter part of verse 4. 
It would appear the centurion was either in charge of building the synagogue. The synagogue, by the way, was the place, what we would kind of call church today. It's where the Jews would go and hear the word of the Lord, and they would worship with other believers. So either the centurion was in charge of building the church, that was the place where Jesus first taught and cast out the demon, or he somehow financially supported the building of the, of the synagogue. We're also told about the centurion that he had this infatuation with the Jewish people, even though he wasn't a Jew himself. So there's a couple things we need to learn just in these first few verses of this passage. The first thing is that we need advocates. We need people in our life who are willing to speak on our behalf, who are willing to pray for us, who are willing to support us, who are willing to represent us. If you look in Scripture, you see that God has created us for relationships. And that's not speaking about being married or, being, or dating somebody. God has created you for a relationship. The most important relationship you are to have is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But he's also created us for relationships with people. And so this is why God created the church. The church is a gathering of God's people, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a building. It's not an address. It is when God's people gather together in the name of Christ, we form the church. And so we're here. We have this reminder that not only is God in our midst and not only is God in our hearts, but we also have an eternal family to which we can turn to. So whether you're married or not, whether you plan to get married or not, it doesn't matter. The reason God has drawn you here. And so you can see and know you have an eternal family to come alongside of you. We're not alone. And God tells us we are not to live in isolation. You know, when Paul became a believer, he had an advocate by the name of Barnabas. The original apostles were so scared of Paul, but Barnabas spoke on his behalf. He represented him, and he brought Paul to the apostles. Paul would become an advocate to the early church and to the early believers, He would write instructions to them, which many we have in the New Testament. He would give them instructions and lift them up in prayer. He would give them rebukes at times. He would show them love. And we've all had these type of people within our life who have been advocating for us. They've been representing us. They've been praying for us. I know one for sure for mine on this day, my mom. When I was a prodigal teenager, my mom told me after I came back to the light, she had been praying every night and every morning that I would actually have a real authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, that I wouldn't just be going through the motions of going to church, but I'd actually know him and fall deeper in love with him. And I thank my mom for that. But there's power. The Bible, God says there is power when God's people come together and support one another and represent one another and pray with one another. Hear the words of Christ. He says, again, I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we come together and we support one another. We are not going through this life alone. And when we come together, did you hear that promise? The presence of Christ is here. Yes, he sits on the throne, but his presence is here. We're in his presence. But I, hear, I think we hear that word advocating and representing and supporting and praying. The thing about that is, that means we have to open up. That means we have to be willing to share our life. And I think we get scared. We have this 
fear that begins to emerge when we realize that if I want someone to pray for something I'm going through, I'm going to have to share what I'm going through. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something in my marriage or something with my kids. And I'm going to have to be honest. I'm going to have to ask them to hold me accountable. And a lot of times when we think of that, we, we get fear. We fear, oh, how are they going to think? What are they going to think about me if they know that I'm actually struggling with this? How are they going to respond when I share this from my heart? And here's an ironic thing that God just taught me this week. When we have that fear, the fear of someone or a group and how they may judge us, you know what we, in fact, are doing? Prejudging them. We are prejudging how they're going to maybe judge us. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. God's Word tells us we need people in our life who are willing to go before the throne room of grace to lift us up. But we're also called to be advocates for people in our life and bringing them to Christ, just as someone has done for us during our time. Now, the centurion here, he could have gone to Jesus himself. He had the authority to do it. He, he was a centurion of the Roman government, and the Roman government was in charge of this area. He was a type of captain in that government. Yet he had an awareness of who Jesus was as a Jewish leader and teacher, and so he used a Jewish convoy to speak on his behalf. And we'll come back to that here in a moment because that's something we need to know about too. But the second thing we learn from this centurion is we need faith. Verse 3, it says, When he heard about Jesus... He heard about his teachings. He heard about his healings. He heard about his ability to cast out demonic forces. But it also implies he had never experienced it firsthand. But there was something inside his heart that was beginning to stir that there's something about this guy. There's something about Jesus. And if Jesus can do the things that I've heard he's been able to do, then I know he can heal my servant. Centurion was a man of authority. He reveals that there in verse 8. Yet in all his authority, with all his title, with all of his status within Rome, he understood he was powerless to do what needed to be done. And so his faith brought him to a place where he understood he couldn't do anything in this situation. But this man of God named Jesus could. And this is where our faith has its foundation. We can't, but God can Our salvation began there. That is where our faith is placed. We can't earn, we can't work, we can't prove to show that we deserve eternal life. But Jesus earned, Jesus worked, and Jesus proved that he could give it. And our sharing of our salvation is built on this understanding. We don't have the power or the ability or the words or the knowledge to lead someone to Christ, but here's the beauty of it. God gave his Holy Spirit inside of us to empower us to do just that. Our worship has the foundation of this faith. We can't, but God can. Yeah, we can play instruments. We can sing songs. We can make it sound really good. But without the Holy Spirit, we aren't worshiping. Preaching, hearing, understanding, implying the word of God is founded on this this foundation of faith. We can't, but he can. Because we naturally in our sin want to deflect the word of God, but by God's power and discipline we can live it. We need faith. 
In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, there's a story that many of us are probably very familiar with. We've heard of it in in maybe children's stories or children's church or vacation Bible school. concerns three Hebrew men by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story sets up that they were rebelling against King Nebuchadnezzar's creed to bow down and worship the golden image that he had created. The result is this violent king declared them to be thrown into a fiery furnace which consumed the men who threw the three Hebrew men in. And once the decree was made concerning the fate of those three Hebrew men, their response is amazing in the face of imminent death. This is what they said, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their understanding in that moment is they couldn't do anything to change their current situation, but God could. They also understood just because God could didn't mean God would. But they were still willing to live by faith, by faith in face of adversity and imminent death. To live by faith is to be in a place where we understand that everything is out of our control, but everything is under the control of God. That's his sovereignty. He controls all things. Centurion, our passage, had a faith that Jesus could do this. Where he was left is living out that faith and whether Jesus would do it, which is another reason why we need advocates for those to come alongside of us to help us to remain faithful in those moments where we are waiting on the Lord. There's two other things we learn in verses 6 through 11. After the pleading of the elders, Jesus begins his travel to the centurion's house. The language of verse 6 implies that he's getting pretty close to arriving when a second convoy arrives. Look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them. The them is speaking of the Jewish elders. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. These are most likely other Roman individuals. Saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That just doesn't make sense. He sends a convoy of Jewish elders to go plead with Jesus to come. And when Jesus is finally coming, maybe he sees him coming down the road, he sends another group of friends saying, no, just stop. Just wait. The first convoy, though, did you notice that in verse 4? They speak of the centurion's worthiness. The word worthy means deserving. But the second convoy, who speak on behalf of the centurion, where the centurion himself says, I am unworthy, I am undeserving for you, Jesus, to come under my roof, which means to come into my house. And he teaches us another valuable lesson. We need humility. Here was a man who had no doubt worked his way into his position. He had a status and rank in one of the most powerful empires that ever existed. He was placed over at least 50 to 100 Roman troops, all living under his authority. He was obviously well respected by the Jewish community. We read that in verse 4 and 5. But with all his accolades, with all his prestige, he was not going to allow what other people thought about him to make himself prideful. He understood his position. More importantly, he understood Jesus' position. Whatever authority or title that he carried in this world, he knew it paled in comparison to the authority and the power of Jesus. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 16, the pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. 
In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The word pride in the Bible carries the meaning of being presumptuous, of of failing to understand that we have limits. It carries the meaning of being overconfident in ourselves. The centurion was obviously a noble man. He most likely had his ear to the ground. He knew what other people thought about him and were saying about him. He had a title which people under him would have wanted and recognized and valued and perhaps even coveted. And he sends for Jesus knowing Jesus could heal the servant. But he did because he knew Jesus was a man of God and there was something different about him to the point despite what others thought when he was worthy and deserving, he knew when it came to Jesus, he wasn't. For us to remain humble, we have to realize We're nothing without Jesus. If we didn't have Jesus as our Savior, we would still be dead in our sins and enemies of God. We are like Saturian. We are unworthy. We are undeserving of such an incredible gift of God. And so I believe that we should take pride in Christ, but in Christ alone, meaning our salvation, which is found in Christ alone, Because when we really think about our salvation and the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, here's what it should do. It should humble us because we're not worthy of such a gift. We know we still wrestle with sin. We know we still do things that are opposed to the will of God, and yet God still saved us. If we look back in the passages of Scripture in, in the Bible, you'll notice Something happening when an individual comes into the glory of God, the full glory of God, or into the glorification, full glorification of Jesus Christ, they all have the same response. They fall down on their faces, though dead. When people began to have their eyes open to who Jesus Christ really was in the Gospels, they realized their unworthiness to be in his presence. We are only worthy. Because Jesus has made us worthy. So we can only live with a humble heart, which requires us to have another thing we need. We need understanding. There's two things that the centurion understood. Since we know that he was infatuated or loved the Jewish nation, it's not going to be a stretch to say he was familiar with Jewish traditions and Jewish customs. And one Jewish tradition said that if a Jewish individual went into a house of a non-Jewish individual, they would make themselves unclean, and therefore they would be unworthy to go into the synagogue until they had a sacrifice to deem them clean. So the the centurion understood this relationship between Jew and Roman or Jew and Gentile. Other understanding, which is going to help us with our humility and faith, is even though the, the centurion had authority, he understood there was real authority in Jesus. This is what his statement is pointing to there in verse 8. The centurion exhibited such faith and understanding the authority of Jesus. He knew this. He knew that Jesus, he didn't have to physically show up at his house. Jesus didn't have to see the servant lying there almost at the point of death. Jesus didn't have to lay his hands on the servant. He didn't even have to speak to the servant. Jesus only had to say the words and the healing would happen. The centurion may have not understood Jesus Christ as the Savior or the Messiah, but he understood that he was a man of God like the prophets of old. Now Luke does not record Jesus speaking the words of healing. It is given to us in Matthew chapter 8, verse 13, where Jesus says, 
Go and let it be done for you as you have believed. So we need to understand as God's people, we are to live under the authority of God's Word. God's Word is our authority because it is the recorded voice of God. The centurion understood the authority of God's Word. Hear what he said here in Luke. Verse 7, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. It is through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit which will only change lives and hearts in this nation and in this world. We also need to understand that Jesus still holds authority in this very moment. He sits at the right hand of the Father being worshipped by the heavenly beings. It is the authority of Jesus' name when all things come to an end that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So with this understanding, we also understand the authority that Jesus had. He has now spoken over us and commanded us to go out in his authority to speak over death by revealing that he is the way, the truth, and the life for the Savior of the world. This authority is known as the Great Commission. And because we can't do it on our own, God has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do such a task. As a quick side note, this is only one of two places where Jesus marvels. The word marveled means to be amazed. Here in Luke chapter 7, he marveled at the Roman, the Gentiles' faith. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown, where he's rejected. And that's the only other time we hear that Jesus marveled, and that was at their unbelief. I can tell you there's only one camp we want to be in to make Jesus marvel. Centurion had people that were willing to go. They were willing to speak on his behalf to Jesus. He had a faith that Jesus could heal. He didn't know if he would, but he knew he could. He had a humility because he understood his place before such a man of God. And his faith with the combination of humility and understanding through his words, I am not worthy, verse 6, gave him the confidence of verse 7. But you say the word. And we need confidence. This confidence isn't on ourselves or who we think we are, but who God is, what God has done, and who we are in relation to God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. God is the creator of all things. God is the giver of all good gifts, and God will be the final judge of all people. He alone reigns supreme, and he alone is sovereign. God created us in his image and likeness, and even though we were born in sin, God sent his only son to live a life we couldn't die in our place, rise again, that we might be forgiven and be given eternal life. And if you've placed your faith in that truth, you're to have confidence in that truth, just as these two came and confessed it today in baptism. If you are a child of God, hear these promises that should give us confidence If we have placed our faith in Christ, we are a child of God. We are an heir to the eternal kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for God. And now we have full access to God by the power of the Holy Spirit which dwells inside of us. We are sealed for eternity, which nothing can separate us from that promise. We are to go into this world, to go alongside the eternal church family with the advocate, the helper, who is called the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And we are to remain humble and understand that what we are to do and how we are to live as God's people, we can only do so in the confidence of God's word and his promises. Hear this statement of confidence as we go out into the world as God's people. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? That's confidence. No political party, no politician, no new law. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question by the Apostle Paul. It means to be answered like this, no one. Just in case you didn't hear it, this confidence isn't in ourself. Rather, it's in the confidence of our Savior and our salvation. And the Word of God has been spoken over us today to heal us. And those who went back to the house, they found the servant well there in verse 10. The word well doesn't sound that great, you know. How are you doing? Well. But the Greek word well means that he was completely healed and in good health. It means he didn't just feel a little bit better. He didn't just look a little bit better. He had been completely renewed. And perhaps this is where you are today. I'm not talking about a physical healing. I do believe God still does physical healings. I'm talking about a spiritual healing. You know, God would be an unjust God if he only provided physical healings. I know that's what we pray for a lot, but he would be an unjust God if he only provided physical healings. Because our greatest need is spiritual healing. These bodies are eventually going to fade away. Some of us, if we've gotten older, notice that we pull our muscles a little bit easier. Our back goes out a little bit quicker. We sleep on our neck wrong for one night, and we're done for the next couple days, right? These bodies are slowly giving out. They're not meant to be eternal. But we're going to get a new body that will never fade They'll never have sickness. They'll never have aches and pains. But God would be an unjust God if he only did physical healings because he knows our greatest need is our spiritual healing. And I want to share a couple verses with you. If you're here this morning and you need to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because you know you haven't done that, you know you have not been saved or forgiven, you haven't been given eternal life, you're not a child of God. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, You can go ahead and put those up, Ethan. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word sin, the easiest way I can describe sin is in two ways. If you ever get into a basketball game, you see someone shoot the ball and it completely misses, and so everybody yells out, air ball, air, that's sin. You completely missed the mark. It comes from the world of archery for you hunters in here. When you shoot at a target and you completely miss, they would yell out, sin. And that's what God is telling us, that all of us have sinned. All of us have missed the mark. We shall fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is perfection. It is holiness. And all of us are guilty of falling short of that. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages, the word wage means cost. The cost of sin is death. The word death means a complete separation from God because God is the God of the living. So the cost, the wage of sin is death, but the the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is free, meaning we can't work for it. We can't prove we deserve it. We are unworthy, but God has given us a free gift through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says it this way in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Notice it doesn't say that the world so loved God. But for God so loved the world that he gave, he gifted his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever, that whoever means it is an open gift to anyone, whoever would believe in him, in Jesus, will not perish, will not taste the cost of sin, which is death, 
but will be given eternal life. Well, how do you do this? If you're here this morning, you're like, well, okay, that makes sense. How do I do that? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. God tells us, if you confess, that word confess means to make publicly known. I mean, Christianity is not meant to be a secret. People shouldn't have to look at you and wonder, are you a Christian? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's another way of saying you will be given eternal life. It goes on in verse 10, with the heart. The word heart in Scripture means with who we are as our complete being. It's not speaking of that, that thing that's pumping blood through your body. The heart refers to who you are as a complete being. That's why we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. For with the heart one believes and is justified. I love that word. The word justified in Scripture means it's just as if you never sinned in the first place. Meaning when we place our faith in Christ and Christ alone, God no longer sees us in our sin, even though he knows we're going to continue to sin. He has completely justified us. It is a legal term. So when I stand before the holy judge one day, he's going to say, not guilty. Because all he's going to see on me is the righteousness of Christ. But with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you're here this morning, this is the confidence that God wants you to have. That if this world were to end today, if your life would end before you go to bed tonight, you would wake up with the eternal Savior. And if you're here this morning and you have doubts in your head whether you have that relationship with God, then I'm going to beg you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. But maybe you're here and you heard all the things that we need to to do, and there's a certain part you're struggling with, maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father and say, Lord, give me the strength, give me the boldness to trust you, to trust your word, to trust your spirit. Maybe some advocates will come and pray with you. This is going to be a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us in a song. And if you need to come down, when people stand up, what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask you to just step out in one of the aisles and make your way to the front. We can pray together, but I guarantee you, if this is the day of your salvation, the heavens are erupting in celebration. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness. You are so good. Thank you, Lord, that you put up with a sinner like me. Thank you, Lord, that you call us to such an incredible task, and then you give us everything we need to complete the task. I thank you for these two that came forward and they have confessed you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that they are, are eternally bound to you where nothing can separate us from the love of God. I thank you for those who have already made that confession of faith in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that we are your eternal family, your children, heirs to your kingdom. And Lord, I also want to thank you in this, that you know every heart in this place, you know every person in this place, and you know who is in a relationship with you and who isn't, and who needs to change that today. To no longer be your enemy, to no longer be dead in their sins, but Lord, to be transformed into a new creation. And the old will be gone and the new has come. So Lord, let your spirit just fall upon them. Give them such a conviction and then a courage and a boldness to come. And let it be known they want to be saved. Lord, forgive us if we failed you in any way, but thank you for allowing us to once again be in your presence. 
where two or three or more are gathered, here you are with us. You're so good. We ask this to be a time where your glory continues to come, your kingdom and will continues to be done. And praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.